Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. This week, we're going to talk about a plant that has been increasing impact, I guess is the best word, when we look at applications in biotechnology that benefit mankind. And it's a plant you probably don't know, but a plant that's very well known by Yield 10 Bioscience and other organizations and universities, other researchers. So today we're talking about Camelina, an innovation inside Camelina. We're speaking with Dr. Ali Peoples. He's the president and CEO of Yield 10 Bioscience, and we're going to cover this interesting plant. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Peoples. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thank you for being here. This is a topic that I've been excited about for a long time because there are so many researchers making everything from plastics to jet fuel from this plant, and I have so many questions about it and you know what the heck it is. So let's start out with what that is. What is Camelina? Yeah, so you know, Camelina is an oil seed. It's it's a it's, an, it's a crop that's historically been produced in, in northern Europe as a sort of a specialty food crop. It's used, you know, basically you can crush it, crush the seed, and you an edible oil, and then of course the, the the residual protein meal is obviously used in animal feed. And so historically, that's what it's been used for, and it's been used by you know humanity for for, for thousands of years. It sounds a lot like canola. Yes, you know that's a, it's 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 you know I hate to say this, but it's like canola without the steroids. So canola is a very souped-up version of rapeseed, and canola really was developed by using traditional plant breeding over about thirty years to produce what they call the canola quality rapeseed, uh, and that basically means it's got a very healthy edible oil as well as a protein that's very very attractive for uh, for animal feed, particularly for dairy cattle. So camelina is something that has been grown for, you, you mentioned, a long time in Northern Europe. But why, where is it being cultivated and, and is it still being used for oil or animal feed anywhere in North America or anywhere else in the world? Yeah, so it's been used, you know, it's, been, it's, it's really, I would say, an emerging crop. There's quite a lot growing. There's a lot of more activity in North America. Uh, and Yiltan has been working with camelina for over a decade. And so, you know, I want to say, you know, we are, we are very, very excited about the future prospects of Camelina. You know, your mention of canola, to, canola is quite fortuitous because, you know, the way we view, the way we view Camelina is it's sort of like canola when it was rapeseed. And what we can do today with new technologies is really accelerate the, the, the domestication of it and make it into a very high performing crop using some of the modern tools of biotechnology. And that's where I really wanted to focus on today because camelina has become such a prominent crop in so many venues. And what is it about camelina that makes it such an attractive target for innovation with biotechnology? Yeah, there's really two sides to that. Let me take the, the sort of first very fundamental reason for that. One is it's a very fast growing crop. It's got a, you know, the, the sort of seed to harvest, you know, plant seed, planting seed to harvested seeds somewhere around 100 and 100 to 110 days and that makes it very attractive as a rotation crop particularly in the pacific northwest where some of the limitations are really just the, just the length of the growing season or the number of fast free days it also makes it attractive as a cover crop this is something that's going to it's really of increasing importance in agriculture 
particularly as we seek to reduce the, the, the climate impact and the carbon footprint of producing the major commodity crops like corn and soybean. And, and that's an area where camelina has just enormous potential as a cover crop to enable a second cropping season. Now, what makes it a good cover crop? Because I, I know that most cover crops have some distinct qualities about them, you know, that make them a good cover crop. What about camelina? Well, what's interesting about it, and I think what makes it stand head and shoulders above the rest is, you know, cover cropping today is, although it's increasing slowly, driven by, you know, basically government incentives to reduce nutrient runoff and to protect to protect the soil, you know, really there hasn't been a cash cover crop. In other words, a cover crop that would enable the farmer to generate additional revenue. And so when farmers plant the current, crop, current cover crops, they typically plow them under because there's no value in those crops. But with camelina, you can still plow, you can you can basically harvest the grain or the seed if you like, and that can be processed into oil and protein today, and, and then into some differentiated products in the future. And that really generates a, a very important value driver, economic value driver to enable very wide scale adoption of cover crops by farmers. Now, that's very good. I, you know, I really was remiss in not even mentioning, you know, what is a cover crop, but cover crops are these crops that, or these plants, I should say, that uh, farmers will grow in counter season. So counter seasonal growth to cover the space, you know, reduces weeds. It can, in some cases, have allelopathic qualities to reduce weeds and nematodes and other, other critters. And sometimes will have extensive root systems. And basically, you can plow it under and make uh, richer, more organic soil by using a cover crop. So just to throw that out there. So camelina fits in that category. I never heard of it used as a cover crop here in Florida. Is it, so it's pretty much just a northern... You know, it's interesting. So it's, it's, I would say, you know, really what's changed for camelina is a number of things. One, of course, is obviously the global population growth, the demand for more protein, the demand for more edible oils, and the demand for healthier edible oils. You know, those are one big driver. The other big driver is obviously driven by the desire to reduce the carbon footprint of renewable, basically of, of, of diesel fuel and, and, and aviation fuel. And so there's a tremendous amount of, of, of new demand for vegetable oil being created in North America, which can only be supplied by vegetable oils probably grown and produced in North America. And that's creating, you know, a demand for somewhere, we estimate somewhere around an additional, you know, 5 billion gallons of vegetable oil production. And for your audience, you know, that's a lot, particularly, particularly that, you know, given that the global production of vegetable oils is somewhere around 50 billion gallons per year, you know, so obviously... When you add this new demand and you look at, you know, what would it take to supply that demand, you know, just to give you some benchmarks. So one example I heard from one of the big seed companies recently is that would be the equivalent of adding 60 million acres of additional soybean production. Well, that's not going to happen. And it could be, you could also add, you know, somewhere around, you know, another 30 million pounds of canola production, and that's not going to happen. But what you are going to see and I think it's, it's important for yield 10, just to be clear, is you're going to see more interest in increasing the yield of soybean and canola, and you're going to see more interest in increasing the oil content of the seed, uh, because obviously it's the oil that's actually creating all this new demand. But for camelina, what it really does is it, it provides the most important driver, which is market pull. And the reason for that is camelina can be grown in areas where you know, crops like other oil seeds like canola and soybean don't just don't do so well. And so really the Pacific Northwest and some of the drier regions, it can actually be grown as a, a overwintered in, in places like, you know, Georgia, Florida, uh, and areas like that. And we're actually doing a lot of testing of our Camelina 
varieties in those regions this year. And so, you know, what it really does is it opens up, I think, potentially the fourth crop and the fourth major crop, new crop in the U.S. And I think that's really something to get excited about because that opens up just tremendous opportunity for innovation in a crop uh, that's relatively new, but already is economically viable, where the upside potential to improve it is, is just very high. Is there anything about the oil that makes it particularly useful uh, in comparison to other vegetable oils? Yeah, so, so in nutrition, there is. It's, it's actually similar to flaxseed oil in that it's got, it's got one of the, of the key omega-3 fatty acids, ALA. And so it has about, you know, it's got quite a lot, a lot of ALA. It's about half as much as in flaxseed. But the interesting thing about camelina with this ALA is that that's actually become pretty attractive in particularly in the vet market for horses and where it provides joint and, and, and other health benefits to those animals. It's also becoming quite interesting and attractive in, you know, for human consumption in terms of just an edible oil that can be used as salad dressings. And, you know, it's a, it has a quite a nice nutty flavor. So that's really, you know, I would say there's a more niche opportunities, but obviously that's been a, a, summer, a driver over the last few. But to be perfectly honest, that, that demand is actually being completely swamped uh, by this new interest in biofuels. And, and that was really where I was going was, you know, what is it that makes camelina oil better as a biofuel? Or, you know, I've heard before that they use this in high performance jet fuel, for instance. So what is yeah. it that makes camelina a little bit better than say squeezing corn? Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's, it, it's not actually that it's better in the fuel. It's just that the potential to add a large amount of additional oil production in North America using camelina through cover cropping and or in geographies where, you know, canola and soy just don't do well, is actually very high. And so the way, the way to look at it in a cover cropping situation, you know, we've done some estimates that you could literally increase the oil produced per acre on a soybean acre in a single growing season by around 100%. I mean, that's a big deal. So when you don't have more land, and in fact, arable land is actually, it's going down. The available arable land, for, arable land for crops is going down year over year due to population growth and infrastructure. Then you need to be more efficient in how you use that land. And a crop like camelina that can be grown off season as a cover crop and can actually support this demand for oil is hugely attractive. Yeah, I can see why, because you're not using more land for it. You're using the land that's fallow in an off season. So you're double cropping for the farmer to give a new crop. You're producing green biomass that can be brought back in and then saving a seed crop that has some value that it, it really seems to achieve many objectives. Yeah, it really does. And I think, you know, one of the, as I said, I mean, we haven't really factored in the, the potential, you know, climate change benefits of just large scale cover, cover cropping of Camelina. That remains to be, you know, to be quantified and measured as we go forward and build this this industry, but but certainly it seems to check all the boxes. And and keep in mind, it is an oil seed, and so the core product from the second season, if you like, is actually a high quality protein. And and one of the big drivers in food food demand the growth is is really increased protein production. And so it's a case of off season, not competing with the major food crops. And you're getting essentially a biofuel feedstock, plus you're adding to the protein pool uh, for human nutrition. Very cool. Now, one of the things I've read a lot about camelina is its suitability for biotechnology. So how it could be easily transformed or changed 
Is that true? I mean, is this really a very agile crop with respect towards transgenics or gene editing? Yeah. So, you know, yield 10 is, you know, we're kind of a pioneer in that space. And so I can tell you it's true because a lot of what's been done has been done by, by yield 10 or, or through our partners. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So, you know, one of the big questions in, in, in crop technology and seed sector is, you know, how far could you really push yield if you simply said, let's ignore the, the let's ignore some of the regulatory challenges down, down the way. Just ask the question technically, how far could you push yield in, in terms of engineering crops to just make them more efficient at using the carbon dioxide that they've captured from the air? And so, you know, a few years ago, we developed a, a really unique system to add an entirely new carbon capture pathway into the seeds. And we were able to show in the lab that we could actually more than double seed yield. So, you know, that was probably not suitable for commercialization. But what it exemplified was the potential of gene modification to enhance this crop's performance way beyond what would have been expected. So since that time, you know, Yield 10 has been working on yield traits, also genetic engineering, both using traditional GMO, but also using the genome editing technology. And there, for example, one of our lead varieties that we were in the early stages of commercial is a Camelina E3902. This was developed by Yield 10 scientists. We used the CRISPR genome editing tool to modify the activity of eight out of nine specific genes. And when we did that, we found that we had a much higher performing camelina in the field with a four to five percent higher and a nice yellow seed color, uh, all of which are uh, you know really differentiating in terms of the varieties that Yield 10 has developed. And, and that was done using genome editing. And in, in the US and, and more recently in Argentina, we just got that approved as, as non-regulated. Uh, and so that's really just one example of what you can do with it. You know, one of the things that differentiates Yield 10 in addition to pursuing the near-term you know, opportunity and, and renewable fuels is really looking at Camelina and saying, this is a crop that's not produced at very large scale and it's not really part of the global export market where you have to worry about regulations in China and Europe and all the political shenanigans that go on with all of that. This is a crop that's ideal for making new seed products. And we are pursuing two. Uh, these are two product traits. And what a trait is, a trait is essentially a, a genetic system which, when introduced into the plant, allows the plant to do something different. And uh, seed traits are usually increasing yield, modifying the oil, increasing the protein, that, that type of thing. But in the case of uh, Yield 10, what we are doing is, is we're really, we've actually done this and we've actually grew it in the field for the last two years. We've actually introduced a set of genes for bioplastic production that came from nature. We've introduced those into Camelina and we have actually Camelina that are producing PHA bioplastic in the field. And so, you know, there's a big push these days to, you know, made from plants. Well, I think we're a step beyond that. Our PHA bioplastic is going to be made by plants. And the beauty of that technology is we can use an unlimited resource called CO2 as the feedstock, we can work with farmers for growing contracts, and then we can process that seed to produce this bioplastic product, plus oil for renewable fuels, plus protein for food. And, and that's really, you know, that's, that's the sort of strategic, I would say medium to longer term goal of Yield 10, 
but we've been actually doing this now in field trials for the last two years uh, pretty successfully. So we're very optimistic about it. And that's what's unique about Camelina is the ability to engineer it to do these, to, to solve these very large macro problems of, uh, you know, that are really tied very deeply to sustainability. Well, just as more of a technical note, so Camelina is a brassica. It's very similar to canola, but also related to a Arabidopsis. Is it transformable by dipping the flowers or is there more to it? It is indeed. It's very easy <laughs> to transform. And, you know, we are very efficient at doing that. It's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really, it's, it's essentially what it is. It's, it's sort of the, way I, the way to view it is it's really like a Arabidopsis, which is like the lab white mouse, except it has good agronomics for performance in the field and obviously very high upside potential. So it's a very exciting crop. Oh, that's very good. I'm an Arabidopsis scientist by training. And I, I always think of the floral dip as the day I read this black magic was the day that my life changed where I didn't have to do. Oh yeah. You know, getting me out of tissue culture and, you know, dipping flowers in bacteria. It was good times. We're speaking with Ollie Peoples on the Talking Biotech podcast. And we're talking about Camelina. What is it? And where is it going? This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Collabora. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Collabora, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabora, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra. We're speaking with Ollie Peoples of Yield 10. And Dr. Peoples is describing to us, what is this thing called Camelina? And why is it taking a bigger role in agronomy as a potential crop that can kind of serve as the Swiss army crop. It produces a edible oil, but also protein for animal feed, and also can be used as a vehicle for a variety of different products. And before the break, we were talking about it's increasing yields. And I know a few people are probably screaming at their seat at their radio or their place they're listening to the podcast. You mentioned you found an alternative way to capture carbon. What is that? Yeah, so, you know, Yield 10's history, I'll give you a little bit of background on the company, you'll kind of see where we're coming, you know, what, what's unique about us and what we brought into the crop space, that, which is, I think, our, one of our, our, our leading technology differentiations. So really, you know, I was the founder of a company called Metabolics, which was the original, I would say, industrial biotech company. We spun out of, out of MIT back in the 90s. And we built a, a platform around engineering organisms to produce PHA bioplastics, a white family of naturally degradable polyesters. And in doing that, we really built up, built up what would be, I would say, the leading capability in advanced synthetic biology. And when we became Yield 10 in, in 2017, it was really based on applying those same principles uh, to Camelina. And, and using then the tools of genetic engineering, including the more recently developed uh, CRISPR genome editing system, uh, as a way to look at Camelina and ask some really important questions about how do we, you know, accelerate the development of this crop to make it a very high performance, high yield, high oil content seed. And one of the things we did is we, 
as we you know started asking some hard questions around you know what what what's what's wrong with it what's wrong with this plant as it is and what could we do about it and and one of the things that's interesting about camelina is you know it's uh, like all plants photosynthetic so it takes carbon dioxide out of the air and it captures it in the leaves and then it makes sugars and it transports those to the seed and then the sugars get broken down to make it the molecules that then result in the seeds. But during that process, a lot of that carbon that was initially captured by photosynthesis is released. And uh, it's released as CO2 back into the atmosphere. And, and it's, so it's, it's rather like having an apartment block that's got 10, 10, 10 apartments, but only collecting right on two of them. And camel, you know, plants are with that particular type of photosynthesis are sort of like that. You've got you know, half, more than half of the CO2 that comes into the plant where you expended all that energy actually goes straight back out again and, and doesn't end up in the product. And so what we did is we decided, well, all this CO2 is being produced as these seeds develop. What if we introduced a new, you know, enzyme pathway, a new synthetic pathway that took that carbon dioxide and actually just rebuilt it back into the seed metabolism? And to do that, what we did is we we assembled, or not me, but my, my scientists assembled, I think, 10 or 11 different enzyme activities and created an entire new uh, carbon fixation system and introduced it specifically just into the seed. And when we did that, obviously, a lot of that CO2 that would normally have been released and then therefore wasted actually ended up in the form of protein and oil and, and seeds. And so that's really how we you know, were able to sort of demonstrate the potential of synthetic biology to more than double seed yield. Wow, that's pretty cool. But uh, have you tried doing this in other crops, like uh, you know, soybeans or you know, other other uh, poplar trees, for instance? Yeah, I, mean, I guess that gets really back. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but that kind of gets back to something you said earlier about the ease of genetic manipulation. And camelina is just really easy to to manipulate in this way. And and some of these other, you know, some a tree like poplar or, or even so, I mean, those are much more challenging to genetically engineer. And so, you know, you've got a, I would say, a confluence of different things going on with camelina. One is it's a, already a pretty good crop. It has good oil. It has good protein. Two, it's very readily genetically engineered. And three, you've got, you know, companies like Seal Tan with this advanced synthetic biology capability that are able to then use gene technologies to just really change the prospects of this crop and enhancing for commercial production. Oh, very good. That makes a lot of sense. Having the agile ability to, to adjust it makes it so much more of a useful crop. You mentioned this thing uh, called PHA plastics. And can you tell me more about what that is? You mentioned, so, you know, it's a type of natural polyester, but give me a little more information on that and what that might replace by making it more prevalent among a crop that we could grow. Yeah, so so one of the, you know, so our, as I said, you know, PHA bioplastics, are, they're really natural polymers. I mean, a bit like starch is kind of the, it's the carbon and energy storage in corn and vegetable oil is the energy and carbon storage material in seeds. In some bacteria, uh, they produce a, lo- a long, you know, a, a high molecular weight, a very long chain polyester. Uh, called polyhydroxyalkanoate. That's its technical name, and it serves the same function as oil and, and seeds or, or starch in, in in corn. However, when you when you extract it, it is a chemically a polyester, and and what that means is uh, you can actually use polyester, you know, I would say plastic polyester processing technology. So you can melt it, 
and you can shape it into various articles. And so one of the, you know, for example, we, we made pens and it's, it, it, so, so once it's taken out of the, once it's taken out of the biological system that produced it, it, it just behaves like any other polyester. And so you can melt process it into any kind of, you know, shaped article, you know, f- you know, flatware, nice for spoons. You can make trays with it. You can make tapes, you can make films, you can make, you know, you can make a wide range of items that to all intents and purposes look like feel like and behave like the plastics we use you know for packaging and food service wear but they're natural and because they're natural if they end up in the environment they will completely and utterly biodegrade away so it's essentially a replacement for a wide range of plastics used in food packaging and food service wear which is fully biodegradable in the environment not surprising because it's a natural product uh, and so it just goes away uh, over time and, and you don't have the plastic pollution associated with petroleum plastics. And that, that's really exciting. And I, I've heard of similar things happening and maybe, you know, to push back a little here that they've done in algae and engineering in algae. And so what would be the big advantage of something like a terrestrial plant like Camelina over growing something that would grow potentially in, you know, big uh, vats or you know fermenters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think the algae story. So uh, let me be have to be careful what I say. So I can I can give you my own opinion. And, and so what, what I can tell you is, if you want to make a lot of stuff at very low cost, you cannot be agriculture, which means farming crops, right? I mean, if you look at the polymer that's probably the most prevalent in the world, it's cellulose. Second is probably starch, and starch is, as we all know, is, is very low cost and it's produced at a very, very large scale. There's a lot of interest in algae, but quite frankly, you know, the, 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 the challenge of algae is not that you can't do the genetic engineering to enable it to make something. The challenge with algae is can you ever do it at a cost that anybody cares about? And so you'll see a lot of effort in algae for biofuels. Uh, but what tends to happen with these, these, these activities, they then eventually morph into consumer products or, or cosmetics or personal care items. In other words, they migrate to more niche, higher value applications, more consistent with the economics of production. And so, you know, I think there's areas where algae make a lot of sense, but if you want to compete with the cost and the scale of commodity petroleum plastics, you know, algae is really just not gonna get you there. Whereas Camelina, you know, you can scale that fairly readily just by growing more acres and you've got a very cost-effective way of producing, you know, the PHA bioplastic as a third seed product, seed product along with the integrated economics of it being a co-product. And so, you know, I think the, the promise of that is really very large scale, low cost, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's the winning ticket in the plastic space. No, that's really great. I, I didn't want to, you know, have you have to throw algae under the bus, but I was, no, I, uh, I wanted to bring, the bus, I, you know, I, 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 what I'm trying to do is it's like a lot of things. There's lots of technologies. Some of them make a lot of sense for, for niche specialty products where, you know, the cost of developing and, and really, you know, going through all the regulatory approvals, et cetera, for a crop just don't make a lot of sense, but the cost structure is very attractive for an algo system, which is obviously, you know, and, and contain the tanks or, or, or ponds. Uh, and so it's really, you know, horses for courses kind of thing. 
No, really, it's really good. I, I just wanted to make clarify because we've had guests on before who talk about algae and plastic production. And just for the listeners of the podcast, so you can differentiate and really understand the limitations and strengths of each system. That That's the main reason I asked the question. I think it would be useful to just provide you with a little color on that. So I, I was one of the, so as, as metabolics, we actually built a world scale bioplastic fermentation facility, um, which today is actually using algae to produce an omega-3 oil. And what we discovered is although we could really make the product at a very high specification and we could use it to make a wide range of plastic articles, the cost of production was simply too high. And so, you know, the merits of the product have to be married up with essentially, you know, a cost structure um, and a scale that makes sense for the business opportunity. And, and that's really what the crops represent. No, very good. And right now, along the same line, we're, we're in a time where if you've put gasoline in the tank of your, your car or your diesel in your truck or diesel for your tractor lately, you know the prices are quite high. And so where is really the break point before something like Camelina could become a very uh, realistic biodiesel replacement? Yeah, so actually, I think we're there. I mean, that's our view. We are actually, uh, I would say, starting the commercial development of our lead varieties. And, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, we're very excited about it. We, we just hired a, a head of seed operations to start, you know, essentially working with farmers under contracts for larger scale growing. We have extensive outreach and discussions ongoing with some of the big biofuel players. Uh, and our goal is really to be a feedstock supplier to those guys. And so I would say that time is kind of now. That's really great. And what is the current availability of the products from Yield 10? And is this something that a grower could be investing in right now to grow on their farm? So so the business model we have, and, and you know, until we, as we build the acres up, is really kind of a more of a contract production, um, essentially executing production agreements with growers for our proprietary varieties. And, you know, that's that's the most attractive way to do this as, as, as the acreage is still small. I mean, this could change over time. But certainly we have a lot of grower outreach in, the, in, I would say, what we consider to be the launch regions for this crop. I can't, t- can't tell you publicly what those are, uh, but certainly we're doing a lot of trials all over North America and see quite a lot of potential, not only you know as far up as Saskatchewan and Alberta, but all the way down to Georgia and Florida. That's pretty exciting because it would seem to be something that would work well where canola already works, obviously. But there's plenty of spaces that have counter-seasonal opportunities where we're, we're putting in things like, you know, Sudan grass and buckwheat and sun hemp to serve as cover crops that to put something in that would produce a seed that would either be marketable or could potentially serve for animal feed would be really exciting for lots of growers. It really is. And, I, you know, I think, you know, the farmer is a businessman and, 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 and you know, he's got, to, it's a challenge, it's a very challenging business. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the environmental benefits that the farm and, and, and the soil and the, and the water uh, gets from cover cropping, if that can be married up with economic benefit to the grower, then I think you have what you really need for adoption, which is a win-win. So do you have any projections as to when some of the other innovations that are coming, like you know the plastic producing, or when that might be something that would be available to any farmer to put in as a cover crop? Yeah, so so the bioplastic is probably going to be a few years. I mean, the omega oil, <laughs> so the omega oil plat, your trait that we have in, in developed is actually pretty well developed. We we essentially you know secured the rights to that from a company in the UK, and what they've done is, or actually it's an institution in the UK, and what they did is they've 
actually engineered camelina to produce essentially fish oil, something that looks but does not smell like, you know, fish oil. And uh, that's very attractive in the nutrition aquafeed space because obviously salmon farming is totally dependent on omega-3 EPA, EPA and DHA omega-3 fatty acids in the feed for the well, you know, for the health and, and, and the viability of the salmon. And obviously it's very important in the human diet. So what we see is essentially our biofuel, you know, taking what we call our elite varieties, initially non-regulated varieties, those are essentially being commercialized now. In our pipeline, we have herbicide and disease-resistant varieties, which will be important to really scale the acreage. And then behind that, we have these two product traits, the PHA bioplastic and the uh, omega-3 oil plastic. Those two traits will ultimately be integrated onto the elite camelia, so we get the best economics as well as the higher value from, from that. So, you know, it's going to be a while. The only reason we're not progressing the omega-3 platform aggressively in North America is because of some intellectual property issues which we're working on to resolve. The time's going to run out and goes anyway by 2025, but and as soon thereafter, we'll be uh, planning to launch. Very good. So if you look at the pipeline, is there anything in the pipeline that's really something that's an eye-opener for the consumer? I would say the things that are in the pipeline that are really eye-opening for the consumer are obviously, you know, an omega-3 oil that's more or less a drop-in replacement for Southern Hemisphere fish oil, which is the gold standard. It has good levels of EPA, DHA, plus other omega-3 fatty acids. It has low omega-6s. I mean, it's really, and it's already gone through a number of clinical trials in the UK, where it's been clearly demonstrated that you get the same benefits from the sustainable camelina omega-3 as you do from uh, eating fish oil without the, the fish burp. And so, you know, that's a very exciting thing because clearly there is no way we can sustain the growing demand for omega-3 oils with high levels of EPA and DHA based on ocean. And that means we can't meet the demands from both aquaculture as well as the growing nutraceutical market for health and wellness. And so, you know, that's a very exciting platform. And then the PHA bioplastics is a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a complete game changer. At least that's the way we view it. You know, you know essentially imagine your packaging or your, you know, your straw or your spoon or whatever that was made from CO2 by a plant. It's perfectly natural, totally degradable. And you know that if it gets into the environment by mistake, it's not going to stay there for hundreds of years. It's going to go away, you know, within, within you know, whether it's months or, or depending on the product form or, or, or even one to two years, but it's going to go away and it's going to be non-polluting. So very exciting technology, tremendous uh, potential for creating a, a lot of jobs in rural areas. And I think tremendously important for really, you know, our, our natural environment so we can enjoy it as much as possible without all this plastic trash all over the place. Now, I, I love all of the different aspects of this that, that just look great all the way around. But one of the boxes it checks for me is this gives farmers another option, a way to diversify and another income source that could be extremely valuable that they would use rotationally with everything else. And that just has so many interesting benefits, especially if you could improve its value as a cover crop. I, you know, I think you're, you're hitting it right on the nail. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, we see farmers as our partners in this business. You know, this is something where, you know, the amount of plastic we can produce using the cover crop is still going to be a very small percentage of the potential. So this is going to probably remain completely outside of the commodity problems, commodity cycle problems, and really allows them to have something that they can really rely on as a, you know, as a sustained good income source. 
as as the other crop you know values go up and down depending on you know politics or trading or whatever it is and so yes it's, i think it's a great it's a phenomenally exciting proposition for farmers and we are excited to have them as partners well have you had any pushback i mean it, when you talk about engineering plants even with gene editing there always seems to be some folks who get a little bit uh upset about that but this seems to check all the right boxes so are people generally uh, in favor of this yeah, I would say it's interesting. I, I, you know, I had a strange meeting with a, a company called Whole Foods a few years ago, and uh, really about the bioplastic we were making by fermentation. And they were very, you know, and, you know, and they were very concerned about the use of GMO corn. And and at the same time, we had these uh, GMO plants in the greenhouse that were producing the bio. You know, they were producing you know, small amounts of the plastic as part of our earlier development program in this area. And they couldn't have been more excited about the potential of that, you know. So we should be very careful to, you know, I would say, consider all all concerns stated as legitimate concerns based on science, versus marketing, you know, but versus I would say financial concerns based on on on, on monetary value. And so, you know, from my perspective, as, as a, someone with a very strong science background, you know, the whole uh, anti-GMO thing is nothing has been nothing but a scam on the public. And it's been perpetuated by many of these companies really as a source of market differentiation when there's really nothing in their product that makes it any any different whatsoever. And so you see this non-GMO thing and you know it doesn't make any sense. If you look at the challenges we face with feeding a global population, if you look at the sustainability and climate change you know, things we have to deal with and are going to have to deal with, I just don't see a future where there's, uh, you know, a non-GMO world. That's, I think, in fact, you're going to see more of it. I'm with you 100. percent I've been a huge critic of the the labeling and the anti-GMO movement for a long time because at the end of the day, the people in that movement, I'm more like them than I am like the corporate folks they hate, and I'm trying to get them to see that maybe this is something that's useful to you. And so it's always been kind of a bittersweet thing for me. And unfortunately, they've hit me really hard personally and professionally because they don't like someone sharing the science of genetic engineering. No, they don't. And I think you become public enemy number one to be slated by any scurrilous claim they can concoct. And unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's never been, I would say, an open, honest debate. It's essentially you're dealing with more or less political marketing. Mm-hmm. Where they take it, it's, it's kind of a no prisoners, and, and let's absolutely make sure that we either create facts to fit our agenda or ignore the real facts. I mean, that's the problem with it, and it's unfortunate, but I don't think it's going to go away 100%. I just think that as um, as as the challenges we face as a, as a as a growing global population, you know, become front and center, you know, these kind of I would say motivations will become less of an issue. And I think generally speaking, we've been growing GMO crops now for probably 30 years on a massive scale. It's probably, you know, probably everybody's consumed something that's had something in it. And guess what? We're all kind of marching along, just doing just fine. Uh, and then I think the final thing is, you know, we, for those of us, and it's a very similar kind of thing with, with the vaccination situation, you know, that's uh, advanced gene technology that enabled those vaccines and you know, for those folks who have um, taken the vaccines and have been very pleased with the benefits of it, you know, it's a great use of genetic engineering to solve real world problems in real time. And so it's a technology we need not only in medicine, but it's a technology we need in food production. 
And that's why I'm grateful you were on with me here today. It's, it's being able to have these conversations to get out in front of the products that will come so that when they happen, people are excited about the opportunities rather than fearing the consequences that are manufactured from a very small and transient minority, you know, and that, that so, so that's where we are. Going forward, then, we should look forward to some of these innovations. So, Dr. Ali Peoples, you know, if people want to learn more about Yield 10 or follow you on social media, where should they look? Yeah, so I, I, I avoid social media for, for, <laughs> for a number of reasons. Uh, but generally speaking, if you go to Yield 10 Bio, Y-I-E-L-D-1-0-B-I-O.com, you'll get all the information you need on the company and myself. That's fantastic. And you should purchase the domain where yield is spelled incorrectly because I haven't gotten it right in 55 years. <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's something we should do. You should, because I'll end up on Yield 10, which will be like the anti-GMO version of your website. <laughs> but, Pleasure talking to you, sir. And as always, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Be sure to uh, check out Collabra's products for your laboratory. They offer free trials on the main product that they offer, which is laboratory notebooks and inventory. And it does help you organize your laboratory. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.